Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I'm very excited today to talk to someone who I think is one of the leading experts on the Second Amendment in the United States. Um, Jake Charles is a associate professor of law at Pepperdine Law School. Before that, he was, I believe, the inaugural executive director for the Duke Center um, for Firearms Law. So we really do have an expert in our midst today. Uh, he's written numerous articles in, in elite and prestigious law reviews. He's written numerous essays in places like the Washington Post, the LA Times, Slate, and, and other places. Um, and I'm really happy to have him here to talk about the Second Amendment. Jake, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Eric. Happy to be here. And thanks for that introduction. Uh, it's my pleasure. I've been reading your work since I became aware of your work years ago, and I, I'm a huge fan. So let's begin oh. at the beginning. How did you get interested in, in guns and firearm law? And how did you find yourself eventually the executive director of the Duke Center for Firearms Law? Yeah, so I sort of fell into it by happenstance. So I started my 1L year in 2010, and it was only two years after Heller and just on the heels of McDonald. The first case I read in law school was Heller. <laughs> but then for the rest of my law school career, we didn't really talk about the Second Amendment. Um you know, terrible and tragic things were happening in the news, like the Sandy Hook shooting happened um, when I was nearing the end of my law school career. Um, but I didn't practice um, anything related to the Second Amendment or firearms law or even constitutional law. Um, the reason I got into that specific position in this area of research is because one of my mentors in law school was Joseph Bloker, who is a true expert on the Second Amendment and has been writing on it since the day Heller was decided. And I kept in contact with him throughout the time that I was in practice and clerking. And uh, come 2018, he said, hey, we're starting the Center for Firearms Law. If that's something that you have any interest in, maybe you should consider applying to this position that's opening up. Um, and so I went and I read a whole bunch of cases that uh, the Court of Appeals were deciding in the aftermath of Heller. And I thought, this sounds incredibly interesting. Um, and Joseph always pitched this as the Second Amendment is at its development right now, the way the First Amendment was 100 years ago, where all the development of what the theories are and the right. case law is supposed to look like is happening. Um, and so I applied and got the position and started uh, just drinking from a fire hose about history and empirical evidence and the case law in the Second Amendment and have found it an incredibly rich and interesting area of study. Um, and also one that has really, really important practical effects. So I love the fact that I can um, you know, read philosophy and political theory and talk about what's the nature of the state and the state's monopoly on violence. Um, and then also, uh, you know, talk to reporters and journalists um, about the serious effects of firearms violence in communities. Um, and, and, and even for those who aren't affected directly, um, just the way that guns are saturated in the United States and how that's affecting all of us. Uh, what's 400 million guns, more or less? Um, so right. uh, I, I'm going to ask you about your perception and your study of the history of the Second Amendment. But you mentioned something that I apologize I have to talk about for a second for a quick detour. Sure. You mentioned the shootings at San Diego State um, that happened. What year was that? You know, uh, Sandy Hook in 2012. 2012. Was, so, uh, so that happened on a Friday night. Early in the morning, uh, and it was, I think, Eastern time, I don't know, three in the morning or something. Um, I was supposed to be at CNN in the studios Saturday morning at nine o'clock sharp. They sent a car for me, even. I was, a, my kids were very impressed by that, uh, to talk about the Second Amendment. And they wow. call me at 7 30 and they say, Well, there was this terrible shooting overnight. Uh, come on in, but we're not sure what's going to happen. So I get there, and the producer comes out and says, Eric, I'm sorry. We're going to have to have you back. We can't do it today. Yeah. And, I, I, and I've and i not seen it a couple of times. And I said, I, I, why can't we do it today? 
today's the best day to do it because these people were yeah. tragically killed last night. And he said, yeah, we just can't do it today. And I said, but, but, but today's the day. <laughs> this is the important. Anyway, right. um, we'll get at the end. Maybe we'll circle back to the media coverage of all this. But I thought that yes. was really strange that they, it even is. after sending a car for me and bringing me down there and everything, no, can't talk about it today. I, and I said I to know. him, I think, uh, one last thing I said to him, I'll be very careful and say the big story today are the people who got hurt and their families, yeah. and let's keep them in our hearts and prayers. But I'm a con law guy. Here's my. You're like, no, we can't do it. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, it's interesting. Um, I heard this analogy where, you know, in the response to folks saying, let's not politicize it, you know, if there was a major bridge collapse, nobody would say, let's wait until right. later on to discuss the causes of this bridge <laughs> collapse or what we can do to prevent bridge collapses in the future. We would say, now is exactly the time to right. talk about bridge collapses. And I think the same thing um, was true. Exactly. Right. Exactly. It was kind of crazy. All right. So when I went to law school in 1980 to 1983, I'm much, much older than you, uh, the Second Amendment wasn't even a thing. Like it wasn't even, wasn't discussed. No one cared about it. It was like the Ninth Amendment, really, you know, no one, no one ever uses it, you know. Um, and now, of course, we live in a whole different world. So I know you've spent a lot of time um, studying the history of the Second Amendment. Before we get to current events in Bruin, let's talk about Heller for one second. Um, so the sure. big issue in Heller was, does the Second Amendment protect an individual right or a collective kind of group, militia right? Mm -hmm. And, of course, the court said individual right. Did the court get that right or wrong, or are you not sure? Those are your three options, I think. <laughs> okay. Those are my three. Um, so um, I would say I'm tentatively not sure. Okay. Um, I think, you know, if you look at Justice Stevens' dissent there, he starts off that, we all agree it's an individual right. Um, you know, certainly the majority wanted to frame it as a collective right versus individual right. Um, but Stephen says the real debate is not about whether it's collective or individual, right? It's certainly a right that can be exercised by individuals. Uh, the, the real debate is over whether or not there's some kind of inherent connection to the militia or not. And, you know, for those of your listeners who may not be intimately familiar, the Second Amendment starts a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. So that's kind of the first part. And then it says the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And so uh, kind of the, the, the debates, you know, in, 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 the, in the public had, had talked about this collective versus individual rights. And some courts had said things like individual rights. Um, but the real debate was whether or not there had to be any kind of connection to the militia. Um, you know, I, I tend to think, uh, similarly to most professional historians, that the militia was the key thing on the minds of those who were drafting and debating and ratifying the Second Amendment. Um, and it seems hard for me to believe that um, they would have thought uh, it would be interpreted and applied the way it's being interpreted and applied today. Now, that said, um, I don't think it's entirely um, wacky to think um, that the founding generation would have thought there was some kind of inalienable right to at least have some kind of weapon in your home for self-defense. That doesn't strike me as outside the bounds of what they would have thought. Now, how and whether that would be enforced, right? as you've written and talked about many times, uh, the people were the guardians of their rights. And so maybe that wouldn't have been a court-enforceable right. Uh, maybe it would have been a court-enforceable right, but maybe under you know, some other theory, maybe the Ninth Amendment, uh, maybe not necessarily under the Second Amendment. Um, so, so, so maybe uh, the holding in Heller um, is defensible historically on those grounds. Um, but I tend to be of the view uh, that most historians are of, which is uh, the, the kind of the forefront of the founders' minds at the time was 
the militia and not kind of self-defense against criminal attacks. This morning, I was um, reading a paper. There's a, there's, a sec, there's, a, there's a Harvard law student named David Hogue, who I'm sure you're familiar with, who was a survivor of the Parkland shootings. Um, mm -hmm. And I've gotten to know him a little bit. And he sent me a paper he wrote about this very topic that I happened to just, just read mm -hmm. this morning. And um, I thought it was, and, and of course, David's in no sense objective, and he missed that at the, at the front end of the paper, given that he's a Parkland survivor. One sure. of the points he made, though, is similar to what you just said, which is that there, everyone, in, I think if we polled people in 1788, uh, most literate people would have, and, and even people not literate, would have said there's an inalienable right to self-defense. And I tend to agree sure. with that reading just Western, you know, law. I mean, I think, I think that's yeah. probably correct. But I always, and David's paper kind of hinted at this, I've always thought what that meant is if someone's attacking you, you have the right to defend yourself and you're not going to jail if you, you know, as long as the defense was self-defense and it wasn't disproportionate, you know, danger. The, isn't that what the, the right to self-defense has always been about? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think for sure there is a right to self-defense yeah. that can be taken away. A state couldn't eliminate the defense of self-defense. Right. Think. Right. Um, and I think uh, uh, Professor Eric Rubin at SMU um, has done some really good work on distinguishing between the right to a gun and the right to self-defense. Right. Yeah. The, the right to a gun in our culture today is, is both broader and narrower than the right to self-defense. People for whom the Supreme Court has said don't have a right to a gun still have a right to self-defense. Felons, the mentally ill, even people who are incarcerated have a right to self-defense and they don't have a right to a gun. Um, and at the same time, uh, self-defense doctrine is much narrower. So you don't get the, uh, you know, preemptively strike against someone who you think might hurt you next week. But you do get to keep a gun in case one day, uh, you know, a tyrannical government tries to um, impose something on you that looks like tyranny. So um, I absolutely think that's right, that self-defense and the right to keep and bear arms are, uh, are, are distinct concepts. And they tend to get conflated, even in Supreme Court opinions that say, you know, the right to self-defense is the core of the Second Amendment. They really do get conflated. It's, it's incredibly frustrating. I should have mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, and I apologize to my listeners, uh, this is not one of those podcasts where I have someone on who's I disagree with, and we have a nice civil discussion. This is one of those podcasts where I have someone on who I agree with 100%. Um, <laughs> and, and we're not going to pretend that we're bringing in all sides here and all of that. We're not going to say anything we don't believe, and where there's reasonable arguments to the contrary, we'll talk about them. But unlike a lot of my podcasts, Jake and I feel very similarly about a lot of these issues, and I want to, I want to be honest about that for, for the audience. Um, one of the parts of the Heller decision uh, that Bruin, al Bruin also runs with that makes me insane. <laughs> mm. That makes me just kind of, I don't know, um, want to scream is the idea that the Second Amendment applies before you even get to whether you have a right and the government can infringe it, only if the weapon is one of common use. Yeah. Saul Cornell, who is a bleeding heart liberal, like, you know, like me, um, and, and, but nevertheless, the chair of the former chair of the Fordham Historical Society has been on this podcast. I have a lot of respect for, um, Saul's work. He puts his politics out there. He doesn't hide them from people. You know, people know what they are. Anyway, this is a part of it that drives him crazy also, because I think it's the exact opposite of what the 11th Amendment says and what it probably originally meant. Can you get into that a little bit? 
Sure. I, I, I think you're right. Um, and I think it's also the opposite of what Miller uh, was saying when it talked about common use. Um, so the way that Heller repurposed the common use uh, notion is to say that um, when the, the Second Amendment applies to all weapons that are in common use by law-abiding citizens for lawful purposes, um, and it doesn't say much more beyond that about uh, you know, what kind of uses qualify? Does only self-defense uses qualify or things like hunting or target shooting as well? Um, what does it mean to be common? Is it not enough if it's common in one state or does it have to be common throughout the United States as a whole? What time period does commonality matter for? Um, so there are some kind of conceptual confusions, I think, in the test itself, which have bedeviled lower courts since then. Um, but it's also, as you note, um, it seems at least historically inaccurate. Right. Because um, it was not the case that um, the weapons that were in common use for for lawful purposes were the kind of weapons that were most useful for military purposes. I mean, there there had to be uh, militia regulations that required people to get certain types of weapons, not all of which those people wanted to get because they weren't the most useful weapons um, for the purposes of, say, hunting or um, even defense against um, hostile neighbors um, at home. And. I think the, 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 the fact that you see these demands that people acquire these types of weapons because they're going to be needed uh, for militia services, uh, for service, demonstrates at least there's something different going on in the way that we conceptualize the inquiry into common use today. And I'll also just say, like, it, it's, it's flatly inconsistent, in my view, with originalism, right? Because what the Supreme Court is doing in the common use test is to say, what are weapons in common use today? Those are the weapons that get the most constitutional protection not the types of weapons that were in common use in 1791 or even lineal descendants of those types of weapons, but what are people, what are Americans choosing today to arm themselves with? And those are the weapons that get the most constitutional protection. There's no, there's no even kind of um, pretending that that's looking to history. It's entirely looking to what are the statistics on weapons sold by gun manufacturers today? And what I've always thought is if you showed someone who knows nothing about this topic, you know, a, 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 a smart, erudite person, but has never heard of the Second Amendment before, and you show them the Second Amendment, and it says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And you said, what weapons does this protect? The last, they would say, weapons that are used for the militias. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's right there. Uh, the way Saul puts it is... Back then, and, and when, when, when every, right, I believe every able-bodied white male over the age of 18, I think it was, had to have, what's the, is a musket the correct word here? I don't know. Mm -hmm. a, a gun that yeah. could be used for the militia. Saul points out that they had to buy those guns. They didn't want to buy those guns. They wanted to buy the guns that could shoot turkeys and put food on their right. table. And if, if, the, if the current court's reading was correct, they would have shown up to these militia meetings with, with like, you know, turkey guns or whatever, not military guns, if they had their choice. Meaning, again, what was yeah. in their minds was militia and, and standing up to the federal government through a state-organized, you know, militia, um, not anything to do with personal self-defense or hunting. Um, Right. And I'll say here, yeah. I'll give Heller a little bit of credit, which okay. is even Justice Scalia recognizes this, right? That um, the majority in Heller said, yes, that is the purpose for the codification of the Second Amendment. It was about militia. So there's kind of no disagreement among professional historians or the court about the reason for the codification. It just comes in when the court says, but that reason 
doesn't restrict the scope of the right at all. And I think that's, you know, kind of where there can be disagreement, you know, among us and among other professional historians about, um, well, if the reason they were codifying it was protection for the militia, then maybe the right itself has something to do with. with uh, well, what I've read is his treatment of what, so Scalia called the beginning of the Second Amendment a well-regulated militia being necessary to secure a free state, the prefatory clause. And then he right. called the other one the operative clause. From what I've read, to the extent those things existed in 1791, the, the, the first clause actually played an incredibly important role um, in defining what the second clause meant, which makes perfect sense. Why would you have the first clause if you didn't? And Scalia in Heller just turns that on his head, doesn't he? Yeah, I think I think even Saul's written about um, yeah. interpretive norms um, and the use of preambles um, yeah. in the 18th century. I haven't personally looked into okay. um, all Fair of enough. that, and so I'm not as familiar with the so, so who, let's, who comes out right in that debate. Yeah, so let's go in sequence here. So Heller comes out in 2008, and for the first time ever, the federal court, Supreme Court says there's an individual right to bear arms. McDonald comes out two years later and says it applies to the states. For the non-lawyers listening, D.C. is not a state. Heller was about D.C., so technically we didn't know if the Second Amendment applied to states or not until McDonald in 2010. Why don't you give the audience a quick overview as to what happened between 2010 and Bruin in the lower courts and the Supreme Court when it came to the constitutional right to own a gun? Yeah, so so a lot happened in those 13 years. Um, so what was happening in lower courts was that um, lower courts generally construed Heller as pretty narrow. Um, and so what they said was, okay, well, all Heller has told us is that you cannot ban handgun possession in the home. We don't know exactly what else. Another thing that Heller said is, we are not calling into question every gun law. It's not the case that the Second Amendment is absolute. In fact, it says it's not unlimited, just like other rights are not unlimited. And it specifically said, here are some presumptively lawful regulations that our decision is not calling into account. And it listed bans on firearm possession by felons, the mentally ill, that's how it styled them, um, regulations of weapons in sensitive places, like schools and government buildings, and uh, regulations that regulate the commercial sale, uh, the commercial sale and qualifications of firearms. Jake, I want to interrupt you right there for a second. That paragraph in Heller, which is incredibly important that you're pointing out, where Justice Scalia lists these sensitive places, felons, etc. We now, I always guessed, but we now know for certainty, yeah. was put in there because Justice Kennedy insisted, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's exactly right. So reporting after the case, um, has proven what you know. What I think a lot of court watchers um, uh, thought, like you said, um, which is that Justice and Kennedy insisted on this for his fifth vote. It was a five to four decision in Heller, and so without Kennedy's vote, there wouldn't have been that ruling. And um, I want, and to, so mention, I want that, to mention that Jake, Jake, just because of a yeah. common theme on this podcast. On this podcast, I have talked with numerous experts about how Justice Kennedy always had a soft spot for gay rights because his father had a very, very, very close friend who was a gay man living in the closet. He was like an uncle of Justice Kennedy, and Kennedy, I think, got all of his views about the indignity of gays and lesbians having to be in the closet from that experience. Justice Roberts wanted to invalidate the Voting Rights Act in 1981 when he was a young lawyer, you know, long before Shelby County, and he embarked on a career that kind of felt like his trajectory was all towards gutting the Voting Rights Act. And that's what Justice Roberts did. I want to point out to the audience that Justice Scalia, it turns out we now know, 
took over 70 paid-for hunting trips while he was a Supreme Court justice and, in fact, passed away on one of those paid-for hunting trips. This is a man who loved to hunt. He brought Ginsburg on a hunting trip. I just point out that the justice's personal values and life experiences cannot be separated from the. I assume you don't disagree with any of that. I don't disagree with okay. that. Okay. Yeah. So going back to 2010 to 2000, to last term, what, what else, what else yeah. is happening in the lower courts? Yeah. So lower courts took that paragraph and said, okay, well, a lot of these things aren't called into question, but how do we assess these kind of challenges? And so they developed a, a framework for assessing Second Amendment claims that they drew explicitly from First Amendment doctrine. And so they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have two steps. At step one, we're going to ask a coverage question, which is to say, um, is the conduct even, even covered by the Second Amendment at all? And so some claims were just automatically out under that first step. So for instance, if someone said, um, I want a machine gun, or I want a grenade launcher or a pipe bomb, uh, courts would just say, those are not Second Amendment protected arms. Those are just out at step one. At least yet. If, at, at least yet. Go at on. least yet. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is all pre-brewing. Yeah. Um, so, um, so those will be, those claims will be out at step one, not covered by the text of the Second Amendment at all. If something was covered, so if there was a ban on possession by people with felony convictions, then courts would move on to the second step. And at the second step, they would apply familiar tiers of scrutiny. So intermediate scrutiny or strict scrutiny, depending on how closely uh, the regulation was coming to the core of the right of armed self-defense, um, and then how burdensome uh, that regulation was on the right itself. And so, uh, in something like close to a thousand cases um, in between that time, uh, 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 every court of appeals that addressed the question adopted this two-part framework and said, this is how we assess Second Amendment challenges. And they upheld most laws um, under that framework. Some outlier laws were struck down. Um, Illinois had banned all public carry altogether. And the court said, uh, the Seventh Circuit said, well, they can't ban all public carry. Um, that's unconstitutional. Oh, no. Some wait, wait, courts- wait, wait. Pause, pause. I want Judge Posner. I want my audience friend. to understand that I did not raise the Seventh Circuit opinion. You did, but what's but 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 it is fascinating. It is fascinating for a very larger question of constitutional law, and frankly, Judge Posner, who's an important historical figure. Which is when Heller came out, Posner publicly decried the opinion. There were, I think there were two judges who did that: Posner and yeah. Wilkinson in North Carolina. Both both Republicans who predated the Federalist Society. Both Republicans who came before FedSoc. And they both criticized it and lambasted it. But then just a few years later, Posner strikes down an Illinois law. And I talked to him about that. And he said, I had no choice. The Supreme Court left me no choice. And I have to follow, even Posner, I have to follow the Supreme Court. Um, I, I do think that tells us something about the difference between lower court judges and the Supreme Court. Even the most independent of all federal court judges, Richard Posner, said, I have to follow the court when I have to follow the court. Anyway, go on. I'm sorry. Yes. No. Yeah, I I think that's right. There there was some folks thinking that maybe Posner was trying to... uh, to provoke another Supreme Court ruling. Yeah, that's not true. I asked him. I've asked. I have have him on tape saying that's not true. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's good here because I think think that's a silly... Yeah, I think that's a silly... um, a silly reading of the opinion, if you read the opinion. Too. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, so, 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 most, so most the key point, the key point, I'm sorry, Jake, the key yeah. point here is between 2010 and Bruin, most, probably 80%, 90% of gun laws were upheld, right? Yeah. Can you give right. a little bit yeah, of flavor to right. what some of those laws were that were upheld? 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the law at issue in Bruin yeah. um, was upheld by uh, almost every court. So I think it was six to one about in favor of upholding that law. Um, so that law was upheld under um, intermediate scrutiny most, in most cases. Um, assault weapons bans were uniformly upheld among the courts of appeals. I think five courts of appeals addressed uh, assault weapon bans and upheld them. Uh, courts upheld restrictions on guns in certain sensitive areas. So the D.C. Circuit upheld uh, gun bans on uh, Capitol Hill or um, Capitol property. And so not just in the Capitol building itself, but even in the parking lots outside. Um, so regulations of uh, the where you can carry guns, public carry and sensitive places on what guns you can possess. So assault weapon bans, most of those are, are all those were upheld. Um, and then on who can possess weapons. So um, most or every court uh, upheld the ban on uh, firearm possession for felons, at least with respect to violent felons, there was a developing circuit split over those with nonviolent past felonies, whether they could be prohibited from possessing guns for life. And there was a developing circuit split on whether or not those with certain mental health adjudications could be prohibited from possessing firearms for life. But most of uh, the laws about uh, people who are disarmed, most of the laws about what weapons uh, were prohibited, most of the laws about where you could carry guns were upheld in the aftermath of Heller. Um, okay. And in the, in the meantime, the court was denying cert in all of these cases. So it was denying cert over vehement dissents by Justice Thomas. He must have dissented from something like six or eight um, uh, cert petitions asking the court to review Second Amendment claims. And the court denied um, all of those in the lead up to the run. Adam Winkler, who has written a great book called Gunfight that I recommend to everybody, um, and I speculated, I think it was to NPR or someplace, I forget, we were being interviewed, but we agreed that somewhere in 2020 or 21, or maybe 19, that the probable explanation for the court not hearing a gun case on the merits between 2010 and 2021, when they did take a New York case, but then dismissed it for mootness, that's 11 years, um, was because no one knew how Justice Kennedy would vote. The liberals didn't know, the Republicans wouldn't know, so they were all kind of, um, you know, nervous about it. Do you agree with that post hoc assessment? Yes, I think that's that's absolutely right. Um, and you know, there was even some reporting that, excuse me, that the chief justice was a little squishy. Right. Um, right. I think I, Bruin might call some of that uh, reporting um, into doubt, but there was uh, there was a suggestion that he was because even after even after they took that New York case and dismissed it on mootness grounds, um, the earlier New York New York case. They then, uh, the next summer, denied 10 different cert petitions that they've been holding in anticipation of that case. Um, and that was with Justice Kavanaugh having already replaced um, Justice Kennedy. And so there wasn't the Kennedy problem anymore. And so the thought was maybe there's maybe there's a question about the Chief Justice. Um, speaking you know, of that, Kavanaugh, that all changed. speaking of yeah. Kavanaugh, May, yeah. before we get to yeah. Bruin, which we'll get to in a minute. Yeah. I... Really will never forget sitting in my office in my little comfortable chair reading a D.C. Circuit Second Amendment case, the majority opinion, which I did not like a lot of, and then reading Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion where I think he said, but correct me if I'm wrong, I think Kavanaugh said that case, the court struck down a D.C. law limiting the number of guns somebody could have. I think it was 12 or 14 or 16. I, I don't remember the number. And Kavanaugh wrote an opinion basically saying there is no limit that any law limiting the number of guns is, un is unconstitutional, meaning you can have 10,000 AR, a million AR-15s in your thing. And I always, when I read that, I was thinking, well, he is clearly auditioning for the Supreme Court. I mean, 
What, what, mm-hmm. Can you think of any plausible legal re- – if, if the state of Georgia passed a law tomorrow saying you're allowed to have 10,000 AR-15s, but 10,005 is just too many, Kavanaugh would have said that's unconstitutional. How far are we from any legitimate reading of text and history for that position? Yeah. Um, so th- that gets into a lot. So I don't remember the exact uh, law at issue in D.C. in that case. Um, I know there was also at issue an assault weapons ban. Yes. D.C.'s assault weapons ban. Yeah. Um, you know, that kind of that, that opinion is now most famous for Justice Kavanaugh introducing the text, history and tradition test that eventually gets adopted in Bruin. Nobody had asked for it in the case. The challengers who wanted to strike down the law said strict scrutiny should apply, not Texas history and tradition. Um, but Justice Kavanaugh said this is the only way to read Heller. Um, but on the substance about the number of law, the number of guns, um, some of it, I think, depends on your underlying theory of what the Second Amendment is for. Um, and if it is grounded in a sort of autonomy rationale, then you could see the argument that there can be no restrictions on the number of guns that I want to possess because it's grounded in my autonomy. Um, if there is a justification that's grounded in something like personal self-defense, um, then yes, I think it gets harder to justify striking down a ban on 10,005 AR-15s. Um, there's another kind of rationale, which is like an anti-tyranny rationale. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's a harder case under that. Um, but it, this points us to kind of just uh, uh, to predict our conversation about Bruin a little bit. Uh, the problems of this text history and tradition approach, which are to say, um, you need no justification. You need no history for saying there's a right to 10,005 um, AR-15s under the, under the current reading of the text history and tradition test. Instead, the government has to show historical support for limiting uh, you to 10,005 AR-15s. And obviously, there's no record of you know, limiting somebody to 10,005 uh, weapons in American history because um, stockpiling weapons just was not as common of a practice among private individuals in 1791 as it is now. So, uh, Jake, that was just a perfect law professor answer, <laughs> and I liked it, and I agree with every syllable of it except maybe the beginning. Um, even yeah. even for a personal autonomy believer in the Second Amendment, um, there are still limits. I mean, I, I think I think all constitutional rights have limits. But leaving that leaving that aside, um, your law professor analysis I think was spot on. But I don't have to get there. Like I, I don't I don't have to get into the law or any legal knowledge to think it is absolutely insane to think that any civilized country. I don't care what the constitution says, what the law says. Any civilized country says you as a private citizen have the right to unlimited machinery of death. We, we want to limit you to just like serious machinery of death. That that maybe the Second Amendment stands for. You can't do that. But unlimited machinery of death? That seems crazy to me. I don't even have to get to the law. I mean, just what civilized country? I know, sorry, but I don't know what civilized. So, so, so we go through the decade of the 2010s and most circuit courts are behaving rationally, most. There are some outlier judges trying to get on the Supreme Court by writing crazy opinions, in my opinion, like Kavanaugh did in that case. But other than that, um, you know, most important laws are upheld, and we know why. Not 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 because we know no, but we do know. I'll never forget. Um, I'm going to make an analogy to, to the Boumediene lit, um, litigation. So, the Supreme Court once held that the prisoners at Guantanamo Bay um, had a habeas corpus right. Uh, the Bush administration said no, they don't. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, Kennedy said, yes, they do, with the four liberals. 
Um, but then they can proceed to lose every case in the Court of Appeals. Mostly, be almost every case. Because, and I don't, I don't blame the Court of Appeals judges for this, the government comes in and says, this guy's a terrorist. Before you let that person out, you got to really think hard. Because what if you're wrong, right? I mean, then you're responsible for this terrorist. Okay. I think a lot of Court of Appeals judges took the same approach. Like, whatever their personal views were, we don't want to be responsible for another Las Vegas where, you know, hundreds of people were injured, you know, because of the use of AR-15s. You think it's a reasonable read on what was happening between 2010 and 2020? I do, yeah. And I think uh, just a, a Judge Wilkinson, who you mentioned, yeah. was explicit about this. And yeah. in, in multiple opinions, he would say things like, we do not, we need the Supreme Court to speak more clearly if we're going to do this, because we don't want to be responsible for unspeakable mayhem while we're sitting in the comfort of our judicial chambers. Right. Um, just in the interest of, of, of um, giving one other side, I'll say that lots of gun rights folks have, have complained about this um, by saying um, that, uh, you know, by erring on the side of restrictive regulations, uh, what the courts could be doing is also uh, in the safety of their own protection by, um, you know, armed officers, uh, discounting the interests of those who might want guns to protect themselves. Now, I think you and I probably agree on the empirical evidence and what it shows about guns for protection, um, but that's kind of the argument on the other side, is that by, um, you know, by upholding restrictive regulations, the court's also uh, relying on its own protection and safety that it has by armed guards and not maybe allowing other people who want to have that kind of safety. Yeah, and, that, and that's, I think that's fair enough. I think that's fair enough. Um, so then we get to Bruin. And now we have the current court um, with Justice Barrett on it. And I, I will say that you've written a lot about Bruin and you've an article either coming out or it's come out in Duke uh, Law Review, Duke Law Journal on this. And I think it's one of the most important and best Law Review articles of the last few years. What's the name of that article? I want people to read it. It is The Dead Hand of a Silent Past. And then there's a subtitle that okay. I don't remember. Okay. Um, and I, I've linked to it before in my work and stuff, and it's, it's, it's easy to find. Um, so the first thing I want to ask you about Bruin is, were you surprised? Not by the result, of course, but by the breadth of it. Yeah, I, I was. Um, so, so I was also surprised that Justice Thomas was assigned to the opinion and that Justice Thomas got six other votes in full uh, to join his five, opinion. Five other votes. Um, five other votes. Five others, okay. yes, sorry, six, six, six people, yeah. um, uh, five others, yeah. right. Um, yes, I, I think the conventional wisdom was the court took this case to strike down New York's law. Of course. And so that, so the, the, the opinion kind of had two parts. One was strike down this law, and two was announce a new method. Um, striking down the law, that was not unexpected. Um, so um, the writing kind of was on the wall by the court taking Tell the case. audience what the law was, was and how old the law was. So the law was passed in 1911 um, in uh, New York and modified to basically its current form in 1913. So it existed for about 110 years um, up until this decision. And it was a law that required a person who wanted to get a concealed carry permit to carry a handgun outside their home concealed, that they had to show special cause or proper cause as the statute said. Um, and how the courts had interpreted that was to mean that a person had to show that they had some special need for self-defense distinguishable from the community at large. So they had to show, say, for instance, that they had been mugged recently or that they were a, a stalking victim. They had to show some reason they needed to carry a concealed handgun outside the home um, for purposes of self-defense. 
Um, and this law existed in about six other states at the time of Bruin, but it had been the dominant licensing scheme um, throughout much of the 20th century. Um, it's a really recent development that courts had eliminated that good cause requirement and instead said that we're going to grant licenses automatically to anybody who, who meets certain criteria. So these kind of regimes, there was uh, the regime like the New York regime that was called a May issue licensing law because it gave discretion to licensing officers. And it was contrasted with what are called shall issue licensing laws, which give no discretion to a licensing officer and say, anytime someone satisfies these criteria, like a background check or a training requirement, you must give them a license to carry a concealed permit. Um, so for out much of the 20th century, uh, the, the, the May issue laws had reigned supreme, but there had been a rapid movement to deregulate concealed carry uh, starting really in the 80s and 90s. And by the time of Bruin, these May issue laws were an outlier in a way they hadn't been even 30 years prior. I want to talk about that outlier thing for a minute um, because Justice Thomas makes a big deal out of that repeatedly throughout yeah. the opinion. First of all, there were, as you mentioned, five other states, so six states. Let's talk about a different outlier yeah. case for a second. Griswold versus Connecticut, which, of course, was the stepping stone to Roe to create the right to privacy. Connecticut was the only state in the country at that time that prohibited contraception. Um, so, so that was a true outlier. I don't know if six is an outlier, but here's what I want to ask you about that. Yeah. I can now – I can name you about 30 states, maybe more, 40 states, from Wyoming to Montana to Alabama to, um, frankly, New Mexico and a bunch of – you know, a lot of other states – that do not have a city within the state that is even remotely comparable to New York City. Certainly California does and Texas does and Georgia does, frankly, and Massachusetts. But, but, but probably 35 states don't. There's nothing in Montana like Manhattan. Manhattan. There is nothing you know, in, in even Wisconsin. Milwaukee is a big city. It's not Manhattan. Right. Why wasn't, I mean, in, in any sane world, doesn't the New York legislature get to take into account that Manhattan is one of the most dense, oh, Tokyo, a couple other cities, maybe Singapore, and Manhattan, right? One of those dense places on earth. What do you think about that outlier? I mean, there's a good reason why New York would be an outlier, isn't there? Yeah, I think that's right. So, so two points, um, and one preliminary one on the outlier point, which is that um, my two colleagues, Joseph Bloker and Daryl yeah. Miller, have a piece coming out of the Supreme Court Review called Manufacturing Outliers. And it talks about the way that Bruin categorized not just this law, but a whole bunch of the historical precursors that New York introduced as, as outlier laws that it was going to discount. Um, yes. So, uh, New York's May issue law, um, it was in six other states. Those states comprise about 25% of the right. U.S. population. Right. So it, it, another, not just the number of states, but the population they right. govern, um, you know, 25%, maybe that's a little harder to call an outlier. Um, and then when you look at the size um, uh, and, and, um, and nature of New York City, um, I think when I looked at these numbers recently, I think that New York City has either three or four times the population today that the entire nation had when the Second Amendment was ratified. <laughs> right. But there just wasn't this thought of these like major, dense, urban areas um, when the Second Amendment was ratified. So I, I think that is also something, like the historical difference plus the difference in geography. And there was, there was even a point at oral argument in which it seemed that Justice Thomas was receptive to a kind of regionalism argument. Um, he said something like, well, wouldn't it make sense that in upstate New York, the licenses might be easier to get than in New York City. And in fact, that's the way it had operated in practice because 
The state law was uniform, but it gave discretion to counties to implement it in different ways. And New York City had implemented it in a different way than the upstate New York counties had implemented the law. Right. And, uh, you know, the opinion makes kind of no distinction whatsoever um, about New York City versus upstate New York or densely populated areas versus non-densely populated okay. so, 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 so tell the audience the, the major change Bruin made in how we think about Second Amendment cases. Yeah, so um, I think across the across the spectrum, whether people loved or hated Bruin, they recognized that it was revolutionary. Not so much because of the striking down New York's law, that was a big change, but more because it adopted an entirely new method for uh, assessing Second Amendment claims. And what it did was say, look, what the Court of Appeals were doing in this two-step framework, that's inappropriate. Instead, what they have to do is do a new kind of test where they ask, uh, is this conduct protected by the plain text of the Second Amendment? And if it is, it's presumptively protected. Uh, and the government regulation is presumptively invalid. The only way the government can then support its regulation is to show that it has a precursor or analog in this nation's history of firearms regulation. And so the test looks to history and tradition and says you've got to show history and tradition supporting any kind of contemporary regulation. And we can talk about kind of nuances within that decision, but it's kind of monumental because the court is saying means and scrutiny, uh, narrow tailoring, uh, substantial fit. None of those things matter. Government interests don't matter. All that matters, empirical evidence doesn't matter. All that matters is whether or not there was a similar enough regulation uh, between you know, we don't have the exact dates, but something like between 1791 and maybe 1880, right? A, a very narrow window in which the government has to show that there was a similar enough regulation uh, to today's regulation in order for it to be constitutional. Is that the time period? Because the court in Bruin went from the 13th century to the 19th, to late 19th century. Yeah, so the court says something interesting. It says, um, you know, well, here's some here's some really early history that the, uh, the government cites. You know, there were uh, regulations on weaponry. Uh, on public carry of weaponry as early as 1328. Um, and the court say goes through some of that analysis, but it says, you know, uh, that's too early. Um, we're only going to look at, uh, we can't rely on the common law before 1791 unless we have evidence that it was incorporated into, um, into the uh, understanding of our new nation. Um, and then it says, you know, things getting towards wait, the wait, end wait, of the wait, I'm sorry, century, I got to stop you there, but I'm confused. Yes. Because I was under the impression that the that, that at least Thomas, at least Thomas and, and Alito and Roberts, who were there when Heller was decided, um, yeah. that they went back to 1300 or 1268 to identify the right to begin with. So they're saying we're going back to the 13th century to identify the right, but we're not going to go back to the 13th century to define the right. Is that kind of what they're saying? Um, yeah, I think that's a fair reading. I mean, certainly. <laughs> The English Bill of Rights um, in 1688 and 1689, um, Heller relied on and said, this is the precursor, right? This yeah. is what we look to. This is obviously an individual right. Um, regulations around the time of, of that Can't look at uh, those. now, yeah, I don't think that the court would say, we look at those. I think they'll say, yeah, we started a revolution because of those laws, right? They were too, uh, they were too restrictive. Just insane. Um, all right. I, I think I've gone over this before in prior podcast, podcasts, but this idea that Bruin rejects any inquiry into why the government is passing this law and then balancing that against the importance of the 
right at stake. The rejection of that, Thomas implied we do in some other areas of constitutional law, but we don't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, he talked about the right. First Amendment. Are, are you comfortable talking about how we got that wrong? <laughs> yeah. How's that sure. for a leading question? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, no, I am. Um, yeah, so um, the court, after announcing this new method, says, well, this accords with how we do other constitutional rights. And it listed, like you said, the First Amendment as one example. Um, and it says, look, the government has to show history and historical tradition um, in order to show that certain types of speech are unprotected. Um, and uh, A, yes, but that is not, not even close to what the entirety or even the majority of First Amendment doctrine looks like. Um, that is instead more similar to what the first step of the old framework looked like in Second Amendment cases, which is to say, if the government can show history, then it can win at the coverage stage. It can just show this is unprotected altogether. It can, be, it can do that for weapons, and it can do that for speech. Um, what Thomas didn't even address at all is that the majority of First Amendment cases, or at least the, the doctrine of First Amendment law, even in this Supreme Court as recently as uh, that same term or the term before, <laughs> if, the, if, the, if the speech is covered at the coverage stage, then there's a protection inquiry that uses means in scrutiny. And the court is not shy about applying strict scrutiny to speech regulations um, in the same way that Justice Thomas seems to suggest that means in scrutiny is entirely illegitimate for constitutional rights generally uh, when it talks about the way that they shouldn't be used in Second Amendment cases. So I think there's a tension there that is entirely unresolved um, in the Bruin decision. And so what's wrong about the example is not that uh, you know his, his factual statement is incorrect. It's that it's just an entirely incomplete picture of what First Amendment looks, First Amendment law looks like, and he apply he applies it to the entirety of Second Amendment law. So every single Second Amendment case. I actually don't know of a. I haven't taught First Amendment in a while, but I don't know of a free speech case where the court said, "Okay, this is speech and this is expression, and therefore plaintiff wins." That's not how it works. Yeah. That's just right. not how it works. Right. Yeah. They say, yeah. it, the government hasn't speech, shown it's unprotected, therefore it's in. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the closest thing is, I think, um, is uh, the Los Angeles airport many, many, many years ago decided it was going to be a free speech, a, a free speech, free, a free, free speech, free zone or something. And it basically outlawed all, you know, all kinds of any kind of picketing, any kind of demonstration, peaceful, any kind of holding up signs. It basically made the LAX a free speech, free zone. And and, yeah. and the court said, well, of course, we don't have free speech, free zones on government power. You know, that. But even there, the court asked why the city was doing it and, and said those reasons don't justify the ban, which is means and scrutiny. Totally. Uh, yeah. Affirmative yes. action. Is there a compelling interest? And is the other means narrowly? We, we can go through all of that. All right. Um, post Bruin. So, so, so Bruin comes out just less than a year ago. So we're, we're still within 12 months of Bruin. And you've written very eloquently about the, um, I don't know what word to use, catastrophic escalation of litigation in the lower courts yeah. and the complete confusion and anger of lower court judges in responding to this crazy idea that it is the government's burden of proof to come forward with an historical analog on any case where the yes. Second Amendment is implicated. Give us some examples of what's happening in the lower courts. Yeah, so I think, you know, the best word to describe it is uh, confusion and chaos. Okay. Um, so 
it's not just uh, that courts are um, understandably having difficulty applying Bruin's test, although they are definitely having that. It's that they are applying totally different versions of Bruin's test, and they're reaching totally different conclusions on the legality of key federal laws and key state laws. Um, and courts are striking down more laws in the eight months. Uh, the, you know, the first analysis that I had was the first eight months. More laws in the first eight months uh, after Bruin than they had in more than two and a half years after the Heller decision. And so we're seeing lots of courts strike down laws that were just thought to be like uncontroversially unconstitutional. Uncon uh, so one example is there's a federal law that, that prohibits somebody who's under indictment for a felony offense from acquiring new guns. So they don't have to give up the guns they have, they just can't acquire new guns. That law um, has, ha has seen four district courts uh, declare it unconstitutional under Bruin's framework. Not a single judge had ever declared it unconstitutional <laughs> prior to Bruin. And we already have four decisions doing it. Um, another example is um, there's a federal law that bars you from possessing a firearm with a, an obliterated or scratched out serial number. Again, that law, uncontroversially constitutional prior to Bruin. Uh, now we've seen courts striking that down. Um, and then I think one of the kind of the most egregious cases is uh, there's a federal law that says if you are under a domestic violence restraining order, uh, so not for life, but just while the pendency of the restraining order is in effect, you can't possess guns. Um, and this law was struck down and not only struck down, um, but a Fifth Circuit a panel agreed that this law is constitutional. Unconstitutional. I agree. I agree with the lower court yeah. in that case, yeah. um, or at least another lower court, that this law was unconstitutional under Bruin's framework. Um, and when you look at the structure of the argument, I think you can begin to see some of the really pernicious effects of Bruin's framework. Um, because uh, if you think about what the state is required to introduce to uphold this kind of law, they're required to introduce some kind of historical tradition uh, that at least looks something similar to taking away the guns of somebody who abuses an intimate partner. And if you look at American history, uh, not only are there not specific laws that disarm domestic abusers, um, but there are specific laws that protect the rights of domestic <laughs> abusers, right? There was a right of chastisement. As your recent guest, um, Reva Siegel, has written about in detail, um, there was a right that protected husband's ability uh, to, uh, to impose corporal punishment um, on their wives. And so, of course, there were no laws that would take someone's guns away for this kind of conduct. No, then there are other kinds of regulations. Uh, the government has introduced regulations on uh, those who are considered dangerous. And of course, if you had certain kind of convictions, uh, then maybe you were outside the class of people who could possess weapons. Um, but a, a narrow reading of Bruin that requires a really close analog makes laws like this um, inherently suspect. And I think as you alluded to, uh, right, ignoring the government interests at stake, ignoring the changes in how we think about uh, the protection for women, um, ignoring the harm that comes to them by weapons in the house by abusers. Um, I think all those things that Bruin does uh, help to show how really harmful the framework can be. So um, lower court judges now today, as we tape this, are struggling with federal laws that take guns, I'm sorry, with, with, with assault weapon bans in, in several states. Yes. And yes. Um, so if I'm the state defending that law, even under a broad reading of Bruin, 
I don't yeah. think I have to show this exact gun was outlawed in 1791, but I have to sh- right, but I have to show there's a tradition of out of this kind of law that that goes back a long mm-hmm. way. And I, I don't know the answer to the question I'm about to ask you. Were I don't know the answer to this. Were there? By the way, a podcast is not like questioning a witness. It's okay to ask questions you don't know the answer to. That's the whole point of it. Um, I, I do that a lot. I hope. Um, were there? So today, the difference between a the cheapest handgun I can buy. And an AR-15, fully customized to be as powerful as possible, is, is I think, the world of difference. I mean, a handgun might shoot off however many – there's a big difference in those two guns. Was that kind of variance between muskets around in 1791, was there that kind of huge difference in the, in the, in the lethalness of the weapons? Or were they more of a – I would imagine that it wasn't. I imagine the muskets were pretty much muskets. Some were better, some were worse. But they, that, that range wasn't the same. But I don't know if the answer. Am I right about that? Or is that, is that instinct wrong? Yeah, that's a good question because I, I always think of it in terms of the difference between um, the power, accuracy, and rate of speed uh, of weapons in 1791 and the weapons today. I haven't thought about the difference between kind of the least powerful firearms yeah. today versus the most powerful firearms today and the relationship between the, uh, the two. And, and I, I suspect you're, you're right that in 1791, um, and kind of the, the, the whole whole period before we had um, some automatic weapons, that um, there was a similarity, there, there was more of a compression in right. the dangerousness of firearms. Um, uh, well, I, I raised that but point. Also like, I'm sorry, I just want to yeah, say why I raised okay. the point. I raised the yeah. point because there would have been no reason for them to outlaw the most dangerous weapons if the most dangerous weapons were only slightly more dangerous than the next most dangerous weapon. But I don't think that's true right. today. And so this historical test leads us, I don't know, into the wilderness. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And I, I was going to say, um, you know, that uh, the the Second Amendment, at least the text, right, is not just about firearms. So it's about all arms. Right. So all weapons. Um, and so you can even compare, you know, other dangerous types of weapons in 1791 um, to firearms, right? There probably was not, there wasn't, there certainly wasn't as big of a contrast between, uh, say, your most dangerous knives um, and your musket. In the same way that there's such a big distinction between your most dangerous knives today and your most dangerous right. firearms. So we're almost out of time. I have one last really big question for you. And I'm asking this because it's very selfish of me to ask this question because I need help. <laughs> <laughs> one of the questions I get all the time when I rant in public about the Second Amendment is the analogy to the First Amendment. So, for example, mm-hmm. in the case of felons, yeah. nobody would argue. I don't think uh, I don't, I, n- no one sensible is going to argue that someone who's convicted of bank fraud, serious bank fraud, and gets 12 years in prison. When he comes out of prison, he no longer can speak, you know, yeah. speak in ways the First Amendment protects. Um, or they say things like you can't be in jail, for, you know, go to jail for First Amendment activities. How can you go to jail for having a gun and all that kind of stuff? And it, yeah. it and my answer is almost always very general, that there are democracies that have, all democracies have free speech, very few democracies have gun rights. Do you have a better answer? How can we, how can we figure out a way to, to communicate to people that stop comparing the First and Second Amendments? It's apples and oranges. And, and speech doesn't yeah. kill people. Guns do. Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. And I, I, oft, I often get this too, right? And you, you saw this 
um, even with the case about licensing, right? Which is like, right. we don't require a license for someone to speak. You don't need the government's permission to do it. Right. Um, and, and my response tends to be pretty general like yours, which is just that, um, you know, comparing rights for some purposes makes sense, um, but not for others, right? You think most people today think that uh, it's obvious that you could require a background check for someone to purchase a weapon. You can't require a background check for someone to speak. Right. Um, you can't require a background check for someone to exercise the religion, right? Um, you can require someone to, um, you know, to get a permit to parade in on Main Street, right? And so, like, we just recognize that the exercise of different rights have different interests and they affect different interests differently. Um, and so obviously the regulatory framework that we're going to apply to different rights works differently. Like same with voting rights. Like you are going to have, you're going to have regulations on the right to vote because um, you need regulations that tell you when to vote and where to vote and how to vote. Um, not in the same way you don't need regulations on someone's exercise of their religion or the exercise of their free, free speech rights. Um, but you probably do in the area of second amendment. So I just think, you know, my, my response tends to be just, um, we can't, we're not going to apply, uh, you know, every kind of regulatory framework from the First Amendment and see if it would withstand scrutiny the Second Amendment. Um, rights are different and the interests they implicate are different. Yeah, I think that, that's helpful. I think, I think that makes sense. I, I think I also think that reasonable time, place and manner restrictions, you, you alluded, you, you can't just organize a parade on Main Street or, right. or, or more, more specifically in Times Square. You just can't do it. Right. You have to get a permit. Um, right. and that's pure speech. You know, that's, I want to, I want to, I want to organize a 15 person political protest in Times Square. If it's organized like that, I have to get a permit to do it. Um, yeah. especially yeah. if there are conflicting claims to that time and I, and why people would think you wouldn't be able to use reasonable time, place and manner restrictions for guns, but you can for speech is beyond my comprehension. Um, yeah. all right. Very, very last question. Yeah. What does the future hold? Are we going to, are we, are we just going to turn into the okay corral? Cause that's what it feels like. Yeah. Oh, um, I'm not sure. Um, I, uh, I was recently, um, with some friends and we were talking who are not lawyers, um, but are just kind of, you know, aghast at uh, the latest mass shooting that, uh, you know, captures all of our attention, um, and the constant fear uh, of public spaces and, um, and, you know, asked me about the future of second amendment doctrine and, I'm sort of pessimistic about it. I, th I, I think there are lots of great activists doing lots of great work. Um, there are new generations who view guns differently than old generations. Um, but the Supreme Court uh, seems pretty locked into a pretty broad and expansive reading of the Second Amendment. And I don't know if the current cases that are there um, or the way that Bruin's being implemented in the lower courts might cause them to pull back a little bit. Um, and I think that the Chief Justice and, and Justice Kavanaugh had a concurrence in Bruin that suggested a more restrained view that not every gun law was going to be unconstitutional. There were still going to be some things states could do. So they might might be two of the most gettable votes um, on the next case. Um, the next case could very well be this Fifth Circuit case about domestic uh, violence restraining orders. Uh, there's a cert petition pending. It was a federal law that was struck down. It's the Solicitor General asking the Supreme Court to review it. So high likelihood, I think the court's going to take it. And I think the last thing that the Chief Justice wants is a headline that says, Supreme Court allows domestic abusers <laughs> to have guns. Um, and so he might be a vote um, uh, uh, to reverse that. Well, I would think Kavanaugh, but, wouldn't like, Kavanaugh wouldn't like that headline either, I wouldn't think. 
Exactly. I don't know. I wouldn't like. Yeah. So, 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 yeah. So, so maybe there. So maybe there are five votes um, on there on that law. But whether that's just like, oh, they got this one case wrong, or like maybe this framework is the wrong way to go about thinking through these questions, or maybe we need to give lower courts more guidance about how to conduct this historical inquiry. Maybe they have to do it at a higher level of generality because we don't have the same specific laws um, uh, that the founders had. Um, so, 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 so maybe that's going to happen um, in the future. But I, th- you know, I think a lot of it depends on. Um, I, I agree with your assessment that the court and the justices are people who are influenced by uh, their own values and politics, and are influenced by public movements and uh, public opinion. And so, I think if there is, uh, if we see a lot more of these cases striking down. Um, you know, democratic action uh, that's in response to horrific mass shootings or, uh, you know, endemic community violence. If we see more of those, I think there is going to be more of a backlash and maybe that'll cause a couple of the justices to pull back from, you know, going full bore into the Wild West. It's always whisk- risky to make predictions um, publicly because then you're wrong. And then, you know, my, I'm, my fear, I, I won't call it a prediction. My fear is they will hold on to that Fifth Circuit case Relist it, relist it, hold on to it, hold on to it, and then deny cert. So they don't have mm-hmm. to be responsible for the egregiously unjust result in that case. Um, but if they yeah. do that, that will send an incredibly strong message to lower court judges to invalidate oh, yeah. laws. And, and and that's what I'm worried about. I think I, I actually I, – I, and then you're going to read a three-person dissent from the three women on the court other than Justice Barrett yeah. who are going to go yeah. nuts in that case. Um and they may want to avoid that, so that's why they might not do it. But I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. And, and so another possibility is that there's currently on the emer- or on the um, yeah, there's an emergency application for a stay of Illinois's assault right. weapon ban, and right. so the court might take both those cases and say, well, we'll give something to uh, an expansive interpretation and strike down an assault weapons ban. Uh, but we'll also reverse the Fifth Circuit, so maybe it'll do something like that. And, and you know, and split the uh, these days, I would take that result because we're not getting anything else. Jake, thank you so much yeah. for being here. This was this was thank wonderful. You. I think a lot of people are going. To, I hope a lot of people find this very uh, enlightening about the Second Amendment. Continue your great work on this, please, because you are the person I turn to first when a Second Amendment case comes out. Um, and I and this new article coming out in Duke, I highly recommend to everybody. It is a wonderful summary of where we are today. It'll be all changed in two years, but as of today, it's a really good summary. So um, thanks again for being on. Well, thanks, Eric. It was great. It was great talking with you.